You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Houston, episode 28, The Death of Moses. Knowing his end is coming, Moses pulls together all of Israel and speaks to them with earnesty and sincerity. The result is a collection of messages called the Book of Deuteronomy. The nation wants to hear its final words, for at this point the entire earth was shaking in fear of this mobile nation. Six mighty kingdoms have been defeated, the Egyptians, the Amalekites, the kingdom of Arad of the Canaanites, the kingdom of Sihon and Og, and the Midianites. Two of these people groups were completely destroyed to the point of extinction. Every nation was terrified of them and their leader, Moses, the 120-year-old who speaks face-to-face with God, who split the Red Sea and defeated every enemy that ever faced him. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is this message and other messages to the people. Remember that comment about him having a stutter so long ago at the burning bush? Well, he speaks to the entire nation of three million with clarity and power, and his mouthpiece Aaron was actually dead, so he didn't have help this time. I don't think Moses has any of those fear issues anymore. No, this is a man possessed with God's purpose for his people. He desired to go into the promised land, but he made that error back at the rock. And it says in Deuteronomy that he pleaded with God to allow him to go into the land. But the Lord said, no, we have had enough of this discussion. Moses makes sure to bless the tribes of Israel like Jacob did, or more like Jesus would. But his last message is filled with prophetic significance, which I want to cover because it speaks about the next 1,500 years or more of Israel's history. It is scary, the words of his warnings and wisdom, which turn into prophecy. God knows man and the carelessness of man and their tendency to fall away from God. So he tells them what will happen ahead of time if they are good and they are bad. They will be blessed if they are faithful and they will be cursed if they are not. And I'm going to recap some significant parts of this message, especially the ones with prophetic meaning for Israel. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So if you think this is severe, we have to remember three things. 
Number one, these people are the descendants of Canaan, the cursed grandson of Noah, who illegally moved into the land, seizing Abraham's inheritance. Number two, these people were defiled with fallen angels and cross-populated with Nephilim, just like prior to the flood. And number three, they were people judged by God, for their iniquity was so great a promise spoken to Abraham over 400 years ago stated that they would be judged. 400 years has passed, and God was using the Israelites as a form of judgment on these peoples. The obedience of this command will be incomplete, and at the same time, there will be exceptions. The lack of fulfilling this command shapes the land of Israel today, while God would make his own exception with the prostitute Rahab, who will be delivered from Jericho. Deuteronomy 12. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess, as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places." You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord... Your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. All right, so key here, God will dwell in the place of the primary worship, the place of the tabernacles or the Ark of the Covenant, which would later be transferred to the temple. This is the place of worship or adoration of God for the nation. God said to not worship on the high places. And why? Because he wasn't there. He said, go and worship where my presence is. The command was to only worship at the place of his presence. Solomon will commit this error, not by worshiping another god, at least at first, but by worshiping according to his own agenda outside of the presence of God. The high places represent man's striving or religious activities outside of God's presence. Deuteronomy 21 has a very interesting notation. It points to a spiritual rule in Jesus himself. Deuteronomy 21:22. If someone is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death, and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Later in the New Testament, it would say Jesus became a curse to take away the curse. 
On another note, related to geography and land, hanging someone overnight actually desecrates the land. I have no idea why overnight matters in this case, but the consequences are intense. Land is cursed. Later, when Joshua hangs the five kings of the Canaanites, he makes sure to take them down before nightfall to make sure the land is not cursed. All right, so we get to Deuteronomy 17, and it's pretty profound. It speaks of the kingdom of Israel, which doesn't occur for 400 years. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a stroll, a scroll, a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Moses here prophesied about the kingdom of Israel and the rules concerning a king. There will be a kingdom of Israel, and here are the directions for this kingdom. Take note here. Do not collect horses from Egypt. Do not have too many wives. And do not hoard gold and wealth. Many kings of Israel will commit these errors over and over. Rounding out these final messages of Moses is Deuteronomy 28 through 30, the biblical blessings and curses chapters. It is quite significant. It documents the rise and fall of Israel with historic certainty and prophesies things that will come true in time with Israel. The blessings of faithfulness and the curses of unfaithfulness. We've covered blessings and curses before, but these three chapters cover everything from the first fall of the state of Israel in the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians to the second fall in the hands of the Romans. The symbolism of the Roman destruction of Israel is quite profound, spoken by the one true God who can see the past, present, and future at the same time. Deuteronomy 28 lays out the history of Israel from a cause and effect perspective. Faithfulness leads to blessings from heaven and physical prosperity and abundant fruitfulness. Unfaithfulness leads to poverty and lack, slavery and death. After preaching his final sermon, Moses' final moments are documented in the Bible, but much mystery remains of his death. Here's the account, Deuteronomy 39. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. 
Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I will let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. There's a lot going on here. There are different ways to look at this account. It says, God showed him the whole land. I find it interesting, God didn't allow him to cross over physically, but then again, he did spiritually. He doesn't step foot in the land of Israel in his life, but he does show up in Jesus' day at the Transfiguration, and some say he's one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. But in this final scene, here I truly believe Moses has a supernatural experience with God. Why not? Let's see what it says. God showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan. Dan is up in Lebanon, and to the Mediterranean and the Negev. I looked at the videos from the top of Mount Nebo. You can't see the Mediterranean, and nor can you see Lebanon. Mount Nebo is tall, but it's not that tall. God blessed Moses with this supernatural experience and journey to see the land. It's like he had a, a flyover in the spirit, where Moses got to see the entirety of the land as it could be seen from God's eyes, from above time and space, and the destiny of Israel and its growth and decline and rebirth. This experience was followed by the comment on his health prior to his death. It is very opposite of Jacob and Isaac, for he was full of life and vitality to the end. It said he was 120 years old, and his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Supernatural aging. Simply stated, Moses' aging secret was the glory of God. And when he came down from Mount Sinai, it said his face shone from the glory of God, and his friendship with God sustained his body from aging. He was blessed with the Spirit, so in touch with God, it overpowered his flesh, preventing natural aging. It says Moses dies here, and God himself buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. I've heard it said that God physically had to say to Moses, die, because his body wasn't giving out. Another thing I think is really cool is that God himself buried Moses. And there is the comment, no one knows where his grave is. Why is that? This leads to all sorts of speculation. In Josephus' strange account, in a New Testament reference to his body. Here is Josephus' account of Moses' death. Now as soon as they came to the mountain, he dismissed the senate, and he was going to embrace Eliezer and Joshua, and was still discoursing with them, when a cloud stood over them all of a sudden, and he disappeared in a certain valley, although he wrote in the holy books that he died, which was done out of fear, lest he should venture to say that because of his extraordinary virtue he went to God. I bet you didn't see that one coming. I was really shocked when I read about Moses' ascension the first time. My first response was, that's ridiculous. Josephus' account of Moses' death is fantastic, but honestly unbelievable. 
But it is worth mentioning because it points to that hero worship we find Moses elevated to, to the point of near worship at times. Moses was still a man and not worthy of worship. Only God is. The more I research this scene, I find Josephus' account of this scene from Jewish tradition perspectives almost conservative or moderate. He actually takes a moderate view, but still it's inconsistent with the truth. If you can remember back at the episode where we discovered the royal training of Moses, we discussed the high reverence for Moses in Judaism, sometimes boarding on heroic legendary status. Don't get me wrong, the story of his life is spectacular, but he does die. His life is so fantastic, nothing needs to be added. But there are so many Jewish legends about his death. One of them has him denying his soul to the angel of death and talking to the mountains and the hills. It is great storytelling, but not truth. The Bible is clear, he dies. God buried him, and there is a New Testament reference to the event which concludes the matter. In 65 AD, Jesus' brother Jude wrote a letter which later addressed false teaching and emphasis on the truth, which became the book of Jude in the Bible. In verse 8, he has a very mysterious entry. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. All right, so what was that? Seriously, that's strange and out of place in the New Testament. So what's going on here? I have to explain this strange verse since we are at the death of Moses. The key here is it's important to not steer from biblical truth. Moses dies. Yes, Enoch and Elijah never died, but Moses died. It says God buried him. It is good Jude confirms this event, making it clear Moses did die. And Moses was just a man, a friend of God, but just a man. It refutes Jewish legends stating he didn't die, which would lead to so many different strange distortions of the truth. But I believe the primary reason for this scene between Michael and the devil is the devil wanted Moses' body to cause the Israelites to fall into idolatry. He wanted to set up his body or even parts of him, articles of him, or even his grave as a place of idol worship. People would worship him because that is what people do. They worship the great people of the past or their tools or their stuff. After all, the Israelites would later worship the bronze snake, just a simple bronze statue, which how much more would they worship their great leader and the man who split the Red Sea? Check out the angelic warfare going on here. It must have been a big deal to put it in the Bible. Two of the three angels from the King James Version of the Bible who have names fighting over someone's body. The devil must have had big plans for his corpse, for we know even the dead bones of truly powerful Holy Spirit-empowered people still carry power. Elisha is the example, for even his dead bones carried resurrection power. But most likely, it was the idol-worshipping and false religious designs of the devil that led to this scene. 
To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I want to recap the miracles and wonders covered in the life of Moses and read some quotes from history. Here's a quote from Haley's Bible Handbook. It summed it up really well, Moses' life and the miracles uh, within Moses' lifetime. Aside from Jesus, it has never been given to any man to be an agent of so many stupendous manifestations of divine power. The plagues of Egypt, the waters of the Red Sea dried up, water made sweet at Merah, quails sent in wilderness of sin and at Teberah, manna supplied daily for 40 years, water from the rock at Rephidim and Meribah, cataclysmic scenes at Sinai, God's voice from the mountain, the Ten Commandments written on stone with God's finger, Moses' face shown, Moses talked face to face with God, Miriam's leprosy sent and removed, Korin his rebels swallowed by earth, punitive plagues at Teberah, Kadesh, and Peor, Aaron's rod buds, people healed by bronze snake, Balaam's donkey speaks, Balaam utters amazing prophecies, Israel guided 40 years by a supernatural cloud, clothes waxed not old, and feet swelled not. Moses could not have delivered Israel out of Egypt and sustained them in the wilderness 40 years without the direct miraculous help of God. All right, so that's one summary of the miraculous events during Moses' life. Here is the biblical epithet for Moses from the Bible, Deuteronomy 34.10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all of his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. We've got to park here for a minute. Since then, there has been no prophet like him who knew God face to face. This is the true key to Moses, his friendship with God. No one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. To think of all of those who rebelled against him, did they really know he was one of the greatest men of their time and of all time? Surely they failed to grasp the significance of the man standing right in front of them. We're going to miss a lot of things with Moses gone, but one of them is God's abiding presence, which results in miracles, signs, and wonders. They make every story exciting. For the next 400 years and into the kingdom period, we will not see the explosion of supernatural acts like we did with Moses. In Judges, we will see national deliverance, in the kingdom period, we'll see supernatural empowerment in battle and many other things, but we will miss seeing miracles combined with wonders and God's power on display in rapid succession. That is something about Moses, a life filled with the supernatural. We will see God move in the future, but not for a while after Joshua will we see things comparable to the wonders of the plagues of Egypt or the splitting of the Red Sea. These will be dearly missed. Miracles will rise again around 850 AD in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and come full circle with Jesus and the disciples, but that's a long time from now. 
In addition to the miracles, we will miss the immediate judgments that occurred in the wilderness. When sin occurred, God immediately dealt with it. Into the time of judges, the sin and unfaithfulness will accumulate to a tipping point until the nation is lost to God. Immediate discipline will not be evident until the time of King David. We will not see another plague immediately broken like in Kor's rebellion or with Phineas, Phineas's action until the plague in the time of David. So powerful it is when a man stands between the living and the dead. Another thing I'm going to miss is the personal side of the story. In the story of Moses, you could really understand the guy because there was so much written about him. He even wrote Psalm 90. Not until David, and with some exceptions, do we get the personal side back to the biblical characters. I'm going to round out this episode with a quote from Winston Churchill. This is his opinion of Moses. We reject with scorn all those learned and labored myths that Moses was but a legendary figure upon whom the priesthood and the people hung their essential social, moral, and religious ordinances. We believe that the most scientific view, the most up-to-date and rational conception, will find its fullest satisfaction in taking the Bible story literally. We may be sure that all these things happen just as they are set out according to Holy Writ. We may believe that they happen to people not so very different from ourselves, and that the impressions those people received were faithfully recorded and have been transmitted across the centuries with far more accuracy than many of the telegraphed accounts we read of goings-on of today. In the words of a forgotten work of Mr. Gladstone, we rest with assurance upon the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture. Let men of science and learning expand their knowledge and probe with their researches every detail the records which have been preserved to us from those dim ages. All they will do is to fortify the grand simplicity and essential accuracy of these recorded truths which have so far lighted the pilgrimage of man. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message of Kings. Stay tuned next week as Janelle discusses the obscure story of the daughters of Zelophehad. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messageofkings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.